Hello. Welcome to the All Policies Are Economic Policies episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. We had a massive GDP report out this week. We're going to talk about that and more generally whether and how presidents can have an effect on the economy. Presidents being on our mind, of course, right now, since everyone's going out and voting. We are going to talk about the other side of economic policy, which is monetary policy and whether central banks have any extra firepower they can draw upon. We are going to talk about PetSmart and Chewy and whether they belong together or not. And I really urge you to become a Slate Plus member if you're not one already, because in our Slate Plus segment, we are going to do a little dive into the redesign of the Gmail logo, which I know you have opinions on. So please let us know what your opinions are. Slate Money at Slate.com. You'll find out what I think if you listen to Slate Plus. All of this and more coming up on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So let's talk about the economy. We had a GDP report for the ages this week, 33.1% annualized growth rate which is a 7.4% actual growth rate just quarter to quarter, which is huge. And it's also a statistical artifact because we fell even more than that the previous quarter. And there's a lot to be said about the GDP report, which I guess you can read some of it in my newsletter. I want to talk about something kind of bigger, though, which is as we all go off to the polls and cast our votes, 
how important are they just purely economically? I, you know, there's a million different reasons why you would want to vote for one candidate or the other. But the thing we're always told is that people wind up voting on the economy. And I am wondering, like, did presidents actually make a difference when it comes to the economy? Anna? I think that the combination of the president and the Congress can make a difference. Can make a difference? Yes. How often does it make a difference? I think it, is it like every every administration or is it just some? I think it depends on what you mean by make a difference because you're always obviously working at a counterfactual if something else had happened. I mean, I think if you're considering, okay, well, if I have a president and a Congress in the same party, they're probably going to be able to put through certain policies. And in this particular period, the ability to potentially put through a lot more stimulus probably could have right. an impact on the economy. But like, I'm just saying, like, generally speaking, you know, if if Mitt Romney had won instead of Barack Obama, would that have been particularly different for the economy? I'd probably imagine no. Uh, I think that the impact that a president and a Congress can have definitely varies depending on what the uh, other effects are. There, there are always these larger economic forces that are going to be bigger than any president or any Congress. Globalization, uh, what has happened with rates, global monetary policy. No one president's going to be able to change all those things. But that doesn't mean presidents at certain times haven't had a massive impact. I mean, look at Lyndon Johnson in terms of all of the spending in the Great Society and the Vietnam War and how that affected policy in general. FDR, obviously, another example. So it's not that presidents can never have an impact, but there are still obviously these larger forces that they're always acting kind of in concert with. Yeah, I think um, presidents and the economy, the relationship depends a lot on just sort of luck and timing. Also, like someone like George H.W. Bush comes in sort of at a peak and then there's a cycle down and it looks bad for him. Or, you know, Barack Obama comes in during the depths of the Great Recession. So, you know, he brings things up. So that looks good for him. Like there is some of just like the timing of the business cycle and the president that may be a little bit out of the president's control. And then, like Anna was saying, if it, the president and the Congress are on the same team, then they can have control, more control over the economy. But like, again, to go to Obama, if they're on different teams, then Congress can work against the president's like plan for the economy. And in the case of Obama, and kind of like hold back stimulus or, or go for austerity when the president wants to do more stimulus. But I think in this election, the tie between the president and the economy is actually really clear because the key to the economy right now is really getting the pandemic under control. And we've seen how Trump does that, and we know he doesn't. So it's sort of to the economy's advantage, I would think, to switch out the president and try someone who might be better at controlling the virus. So I'm fascinated by this question of Trump and the economy because it's the one area, weirdly, where he's polling ahead of Biden. We are in a huge economic downturn. We are down further from, even after that last Q3 GDP growth figure, we are still down further from the peak than we were at the depths of the Great Recession in 2009. We have, you know, 25 million people collecting unemployment every week. It's it's objectively terrible economy. And yet, in the face of this objectively terrible economy, the population as a whole trusts 
Trump on the economy more than Biden. And they trust him despite the fact that the reason that the economy is so bad is because of the pandemic, which Trump handled so atrociously. I don't entirely understand that. But one thing I will point to is if you look at other countries which have handled the pandemic better, they're still having massive economic problems. And really, the effect of Trump on the economy is entirely, really, I think, down to the way that he reacted to the pandemic. And the effect he had on the economy, yeah, he had an effect on the US economy, but he had an effect on the global economy because the pandemic is a global thing. And if America had stepped up and taken the leadership role that everyone always expected it to in the event of a global pandemic, then that would have not only worked out very well for the US in comparison to what actually happened, but would have worked out very well for the rest of the planet too. Yeah, that's the bigger counterfactual. Like at the very, very beginning of this, if the U.S. had acted, if we had had a different, more competent administration, the scope of the pandemic might look different right now. And the scope of the economic kind of collapse wouldn't be as bad. Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely correct. It's it is interesting because Trump pulls so poorly on the pandemic. But for whatever reason, a lot of people are able to separate those two and kind of assume that there's aspects of the economy that weren't really caused by what Trump did. And I mean, I agree with you. I think that while we can't know 100%, it seems fairly likely that if we had at least had someone who took this seriously from the very, very beginning and put in policies to limit the spread, especially at the very beginning, to prepare all of the states at the very beginning, we one would imagine not be in the place we are right now. We probably, we obviously would have taken an economic hit, but just probably not to the extent that we did. I was looking back at articles from when Trump was first elected and everyone, not everyone, but there were a lot of pieces that were like, Donald Trump's going to crash the economy um, from like Larry Summers. And uh, there were a few of these pieces. And that Justin really did Wolfers not happen. Justin was convinced that the stock market would fall off a cliff. It didn't. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, everyone kind of thought like, the, you know, the, the intelligentsia all thought that Hillary Clinton would be much better for both the economy and the markets than Trump would be. And with hindsight, at least if you look at the first three years of the Trump administration, I'm not sure that was true. The economy did fine under Trump. I think it would have done fine under Clinton. I don't think there's mu that much to choose between them. I do think that Trump is better at taking credit for that kind of thing than mm. Clinton would have been. But I think the interesting aspect of all this is that it's not actually the president's economic policy that determines, that, that yes. really influences the most important effect that the president has on the economy. This is the really crazy thing. If you look at the big important effects that presidents have on the economy, like look at, for instance, the end of the Cold War in like 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, you get this massive peace dividend and you get this huge boom throughout the 1990s. Look at the creation of the League of Nations and the European community after the Second World War, which brings peace to Europe and allows a massive similar peace dividend and huge growth and wealth creation in Europe. Look at the way that the international community allowed China into the World Trade Organization and increased trade with China, which had enormous effects on inflation and growth around the world. These are not really at heart what people think of as economic policy. A lot of them are foreign policy. And as we've just seen, you know, it comes down to, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and parts of the government, which you don't think of as being economic policy, wind up having much more effect 
in terms of the influence of presidents on the economy than, you know, the choice of the Treasury Secretary. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the president runs the biggest company in the country and the world and has this massive bureaucracy to sort of run and shape and keep not only the United States kind of running smoothly, but the world running smoothly. And I feel like you have to have a competent steward of the bureaucracy and the machinery of government, like baseline to have a stable economy at all. And I think that's ultimately the the main argument, economic argument to vote for Biden in this election, right, is that you have stability and predictability and known quantity and you don't have a chaos monkey in the White House, right? And so when when you <laughs> yeah. take the chaos, when you take the chaos out of the equation, then you can have that's the, a, a decent precondition for for global growth. Right. But it doesn't yeah, mean the I economy think... is going to be amazing if you have a decent captain at the helm of the ship or whatever. It just no, gives you absolutely. it just sets the table. Like we don't know what the food's going to be like. As you said, if you look at Bush senior, you know, like no one saying that he was a terrible steward. He was a perfectly decent ship captain, but, you know, he got unlucky with the economy. That happens. Mm. Fundamentally, all policies are economic policies to a certain extent Ooh. because, well, no, because Ooh. I mean, like, the, <laughs> you, just blew our, you just blew our mind there. Blew your mind. Yeah. <laughs> right, but I mean, <laughs> the economy is made up of everything everybody is doing. So, yeah. you know, the fact that Trump engaged in the type of trade wars or just the foreign policy that he had with China was obviously a weight on the economy. Some of those are more specifically economic policies. Some of them aren't. And so, you know, as you said, moving forward, almost anything the president does can have an impact on the economy. But as the world becomes increasingly global and increasingly connected, those policies that have a more global international range probably are more apt to have a bigger impact. Also, I'd been thinking about rising inequality in the United States and you can have a good economy with big inequality, wide inequality, right? I mean, the GDP numbers look pretty good, but we know that a lot of people are really suffering still right Up now. Up to a certain uh, level, I yeah. think, perhaps. I think w once you reach a level of wealth, you know, that we have in the United States, it becomes harder and harder to drive growth through, like, increasing inequality. And at some point, you need to start bringing up the bottom 90% in order to see actual, like, broad-based or even just actual overall aggregate growth. You know, there's just a limit to how much economic activity the top 10% of people can actually do. Then I think the president can have an effect on that. You know what I mean? I think... I think that's when we really need the political aspect to come in and, and foster more equality in the system, right? The president can have some. I mean, I think right now, because of the power of central banks, that, that's also another factor there. But I, I, I do agree with, with Felix that while any capitalist system, you're going to have some inequality, that's kind of by definition. Once you start to have extraordinary wealth concentration, it, it means that those at the lower income deciles who spend all of their money they aren't going to be spending it or they're going to be spending the money they have. They don't have enough. So you actually want to be getting more money to the lower income deciles because they will spend and spur more economic growth. A lot of the policies we've had over the past 15 years have just, they've inflated asset prices, but they haven't done a lot for underlying growth. And I, I think to answer my own question about why does Donald Trump get 
better grades on the economy than Joe Biden, even though, you know, the Obama years were, were perfectly healthy economic-wise as well. It's just basically because he shouts very loudly about the stock market. And he came in too, like, you know, foolishly as it was, and I said it was foolish at the time, he came in on day one and said, judge me by the stock market. And everyone was like, that's ridiculous. The economy is not the stock market. You don't control the stock market. Why are you saying something so stupid? As it happened, that was one of like the ways he got very lucky because the stock market did great. And so he now gets to turn around and say, look, the stock market did great. The other thing I would say is that he really benefited by coming in after you'd already had many years of expansion. And he was kind of at the end of that expansion. And that's the period of time where the job market gets so tight that those people who are at kind of the lowest part of the job market are apt to actually get hired to see wages increase. And that wasn't going to happen earlier on just because it was closer to the beginning of the recovery. So Trump's going to benefit from people kind of probably remembering that as well and associating that with him, whether or not that's fair. Does Trump also get, I hate to say it, credit for pushing the Fed to keep interest rates low and, and pressuring them? No. No, no, no. <laughs> but but that but that is an incredibly good segue to the next segment <laughs> where we're going to talk about the Fed. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's talk about the Fed. Anna, you mentioned in the last segment about how central banks and central bankers have a huge amount of influence over the economy. A lot of people say, quote, this is a phrase now in, in the you know econoblogosphere, which is the only game in town. The only thing you need to know is the Fed. Just care about what the Fed does, care about what the ECB does. It doesn't even matter what anyone else does. It's the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. And we just had Bill Dudley come out. He's the head of the New York Fed. And he said, OK, folks, this is true. We're the only game in town, pretty much, because Congress isn't stepping up to do much in terms of fiscal policy. But there's a problem because we are out of firepower. We've done whatever we can. We've brought down interest rates to zero. We've announced all of these QE programs and all the rest of it. There's nothing else we can do. So if you want further expansion and further stimulus and you're looking to us, you shit out of luck. That was the message from Bill Dudley. I want to talk about what my former colleague Megan Green and her co-author Eric Lonergan have been writing about for a little while, which is basically this idea that he is completely wrong about that and that central banks have the ability to really bring out a massive bazooka that they haven't even thought about using yet. Emily, you want to sort of 
come in on this idea of dual interest rates. I know that you are a monetary policy wonk, but this is why <laughs> I'm asking you. Like, yes. Do you understand this idea of dual interest I rates? Think, I believe, Felix, that I do understand. I think I can explain it thusly. It basically means that the central bank gives banks money at negative interest rates, so essentially pays them to take the money. But then they also, <laughs> the banks, there's another interest rate for depositors who hold the money in the banks, and they still have a positive interest rate. So it's negative interest rates for banks, and then positive interest rates for savers. Do I have and right? the banks are savers. Like the, the, the central bank can't <laughs> really control the savings rates, but, the, but it does pay interest on bank reserves. When the banks hold mm -hmm. money at the central bank, which they are doing in their trillions right now, um, the way that the central bank sets interest rates is by paying interest on those reserves. And the idea is that you can continue to pay positive interest on those reserves, even if you cut the rate you lend to banks to a negative number. And it's very counterintuitive because it's like, isn't that just giving free money to the banks? They'll borrow money from you at a negative rate, deposit it back with you at a positive rate, and they'll just make free money. And what's the point of that? But Europe has actually been trying this with this thing called Teltros, which like, we're not even going to go there. But it can be done if you really enforce a rule saying that the banks can't just turn around and put it back on deposit. They have to really lend that money into the economy. Then the money does wind up going into the economy. And it is basically stimulus. I think that there are a number of problems with this. I would say the biggest problem is that it continues to keep the focus in the wrong set of tools that we have seen in Japan, we have seen in Europe, we've seen in the United States that when you get into Nearer the zero lower bound, monetary policy does not work particularly well to stimulate growth in the economy for the reason that there isn't demand for loans. So you can throw all the money you want at banks and they can throw all the money if they want in the economy. But the problem is if no one really wants that money, the problem is not that they can't access the capital, it's that there's no demand for them to invest in anything so that they would need those loans. And this policy doesn't really do anything to address that. And what we've seen in Europe when they've used this in a limited fashion for the Tiltros, is that mostly what it's done is prop up Spanish and Italian banks. It's made them look slightly less insolvent, but it really hasn't done a tremendous amount for the very reason that there just isn't quite the demand for the loans in the real economy. So explain to me why cutting interest rates from you know 5% to 2% increases demand for loans, but cutting interest rates from 0% to minus 3% does not increase demand for loans. So what we've seen is that when you're in a more normalized rate environment, and if you're in a more normalized rate environment, that also means that other things are happening in the economy. It means that there has to be some inflation. It means that there is reasonable aggregate demand. It means that the reason that companies aren't investing is often because their cost of capital is a little bit too expensive. So when you change that cost of capital, that affects their behavior. Once you start to get really, really low, that means that these other factors are happening in the economy. And a lot of those factors have to do with this lack of aggregate demand, which is part of the reason you're not seeing inflation. So when you start to change the cost of capital at those very, very low levels, it's not addressing the underlying problem. So it doesn't have the same impact. So my response to that is, well, maybe we don't know. We haven't tried. But also what you seem to be saying would apply 
almost the same to fiscal policy, which everyone seems to agree is a good idea, like let's have some fiscal stimulus as it does to monetary policy. Because in many ways, what I'm proposing here, or what Megan and Eric are proposing here, is fiscal policy. It's it's basically moving fiscal policy a little bit across the line from lawmakers to central banks. And that has its own potential problems. And I'm happy to admit that. But you're injecting money into the economy in much the same way that Congress would if it passed a big stimulus bill. So if it doesn't work if you do it from the central bank, does that mean it also wouldn't work if you did it from Congress? No. When you're doing it with the Congress, especially if you're doing it by giving people money either through services or through actual cash transfers, that is putting money into the hands of consumers who then will have larger demand, which will then mean the companies will have more incentive to want loans from the bank. If you're putting money through monetary policy, that's not putting money into the hands of individuals. That's potentially having companies have slightly less cost of capital. Again, it will affect asset prices, but it's not injecting it into the real economy in the way that policies, that fiscal policies can do. Now, if you have the type of fiscal policies that the Republicans tend to support, which are more cutting taxes, I would argue that that similarly probably is not going to have an enormous impact because it's the lack of aggregate demand that's the problem. It's not the supply of capital. Yeah. I mean, you need to do this in this crisis specifically, you need to do the fiscal stimulus to get money into the hands of people who will spend it immediately. And we know we have lots of those people at the lowest income levels, either unemployed people or people who are making a lot less money now because the service sector has been decimated. And we saw what happened with the CARES Act, which put all this money in those specific people's hands, they spent it, their spending levels increased, actually increased over the past few months. It seems like giving free money to banks to make loans is so like many levels removed from what's actually necessary to improve the economy. It seems just pathetic, not pathetic. It's it's a signifier of how dysfunctional Congress and how dysfunctional the fiscal stimulus side of things has become that we need to turn to the central banks and say like, okay, I guess just pay banks to lend lend out money and let's hope it like trickles down to the people who actually need it rather than just like, let's give the people who actually need it the money to spend into the system to stimulate the economy, which would be so much more effective. It, it does seem to be it's more pathetic. effective. And if you look at the unemployment rate in countries like Germany or, you know, the UK, where, you know, if the government comes out and says, you have to close down your bar, then at the same time, they say, well, we'll continue to pay you the amount of money you would have earned if you'd had your bar open, because it's our fault that you're closing down the bar, because we are forcing you to close it down. And then that keeps the income flowing, and it keeps the money moving. And it's people, you know, it's bartenders who wind up in, you know, keeping the economy going. And I do believe that it's much more efficient to just give money to bartenders than it is to try and, you know, lend money to banks and hope that eventually that money will find its way to bartenders because bartenders are not borrowing millions of dollars. Right. No one's going to borrow money to start a bar right now and hire a bartender. You know what I mean? Like, that's not happening. You just have to, everything's all messed up. People are spending money in weird, different ways now. And it's just easier to let people decide where to put the money than to let a bank decide who to give the money to, to help their business or start a business. Like it just, like, it doesn't make sense to me. It just seems so removed from reality. Yeah. And in Europe too, the banking sector is much more directly involved in funding companies as opposed to in the US, which capital markets and kind of non-bank lenders play a much larger role which is another reason why I just don't necessarily think it would be as effective in the U.S. as even 
any effectiveness it has had in Europe. Okay, so since we're talking about obscure economic actors, let's talk about private equity funds. BC Partners is a private equity fund which bought PetSmart, which is the pet store that you probably have on a corner or a shopping mall near you, did the classic private equity play and levered it up with lots of debt to, you know, blah, blah, try and dividend out, you know, that kind of thing, make lots of money, even if it wasn't growing. And then in 2017, they did something which was not the classic private equity play, which was that they bought Chewy.com. And I believe we talked about this on the show at the time in 2017. They bought Chewy.com for the redonkulous amount sum of three and a half billion dollars. And we all sat here and said, that's crazy. How on earth is Chewy.com worth three and a half billion dollars? It's never made a penny in its life. And in hindsight, that was a stroke of genius because, as we now know, um, BC Partners decided to IPO Chewy.com with a little bit of equity is now freely traded on the stock market. And if you look at what the stock market says Chewy is worth, it is now worth about $30 billion. Thank you, pandemic. So this should be great for PetSmart, right? Because PetSmart bought Chewy. Chewy is now worth $30 billion. PetSmart is in the clear. It's making lots of money. But that's not what's happening. And this is why I think this Chewy story is so interesting, or rather the BC Partners PetSmart Chewy story is so interesting. Somehow, you can make a bet which turns out really well. PetSmart can be in this position of owning a really white-hot, on-fire e-commerce business and still be stuck with billions of dollars in debt and a junk bond credit rating and not really be out of the woods at all. At this point, it doesn't make any sense to keep those companies together because what Chewy.com is doing is basically cannibalizing business from PetSmart. Part of the reason that BC Partners initially acquired Chewy was because they had their original investment thesis, which was kind of based on the idea of like, look, PetSmart throws off cash, but it's not growing. Its sales have declined. We want to rationalize its prices, blah, blah, blah. And they did that. But then consumers started to shift to buying things online. And they could either try to build something or they could buy it. And so they took on debt to buy it. The problem was you never integrated those companies. So there isn't really any benefit to having them together. All it does for PetSmart is, again, you have this company that's essentially taking business away from them. And on top of that, it makes their leverage ratios worse because Chewy doesn't make money. PetSmart has not been fantastic, but it does make money. So it will actually be in a better position leverage-wise when you separate the companies. And this enables that company to kind of refocus on services and like pet doggy daycare and prescriptions and then let Chewy deal with the business of selling people goods. Okay, I feel like you're contradicting yourself a little bit here because on the one side you say, and let's just like talk about the news here, which is that BC Partners is ripping Chewy out of PetSmart entirely and leaving PetSmart with no e-commerce basically at all. You're saying, well, what this does is allow PetSmart to concentrate on doggy daycare and real world stuff, which is fine, but you're also saying that they never really integrated it. So how were they not able to concentrate on doggy daycare all along? Well, yes, in theory, if they had really wanted to, they could have focused on doggy daycare, but it doesn't make any sense to do this while you have this other company attached to you that is making it more expensive for you to borrow money. So when you have two businesses connected to each other that are need to do very, very, very different things, 
it doesn't really help either of them to be connected. If you're a company like PetSmart, you can main, you can continue to be connected with Chewy. And what's going to happen? Well, you're probably going to eventually just go out of business. If you're separating them, you at least can have a focus and again, slightly better metrics to move forward. I still think they're probably going to end up going out of business at some point, but there's still a possibility. And then similarly with Chewy, it doesn't make any sense to have this bricks and mortar company connected to you that doesn't really add anything. So I think that there's probably more value having these as two separate companies. Look, I thought when we were going to talk about Chewy and PetSmart, it was going to be like kind of a cute story about, you know, puppies and like selling pet food and stuff. And then you read about the history of PetSmart and Chewy and this (laughs) BC Partners (laughs) that owns both of these things. And it's just like financial shenanigans, it seems like to me. Like no one was thinking – like when PetSmart bought Chewy – if it was doing something interesting in the space of like cute puppies and selling pet food and services, I feel like there was a good, like Anna was saying, a good integration play where PetSmart could have like become a more 2020 kind of pet retailer. And there could have been nice integration between the two companies and a strategic plan. But it seems like all BC partners wanted to do was kind of like acquire a competitor, suck all the value out of it, suck all the value out of PetSmart and separate them again. Like it doesn't seem like anything was done in the best interests of the actual companies here. I totally agree. Um, If you look at PetSmart as a company rather than as like a portfolio holding, what's happened to PetSmart here is not good. The you know, BC Partners has been very good at financial engineering and extracting value and making plays and all the rest of it. But if you're an employee of PetSmart, if you're like a stakeholder of PetSmart who's not the shareholder, then you are looking at all of these shenanigans and you're saying, well, hey, you know, my owners have just made $11 billion from this, you know, financial engineering. I'm still making minimum wage. There's PetSmart still pays minimum wage in a lot of different states. You know, there's a bunch of complaints about how they haven't been providing enough, like, masks and stuff like that for employees. And, you know, BC Partners, as far as they're concerned, hey, they're making money. That's their job, right? They make they, they exist to make money for their limited partners, and they've made money. So congratulations, BC Partners. You've done a good job in that. But for PetSmart itself, as a business, as a part of the community, as a place which employs people, this none of this seems to have been good for them. And I feel like that's been a criticism of private equity since, you know, before Mitt Romney ran for president, but then it was a big point of discussion when Mitt Romney ran, which is that private equity is just not good at creating real value in the community as as opposed to making money for billionaires. I would say that, number one, part of the reason that PetSmart was originally bought by a private equity firm was because... It was not seeing growth. It was seeing revenue declines. It almost certainly did not have a very healthy future ahead of it, which is part of the reason it was purchased by private equity. So I think you can argue that now at this stage, is PetSmart going to survive and thrive? I'm not sure. But I don't think that private equity coming in is what is going to be the determining factor. Yes, they still do have a decent amount of leverage, although actually their leverage ratios has come down significantly, partly because when they IPO'd Chewy, they put like a 
billion dollars from those that IPO into taking down the debt of PetSmart. And then the other thing I'll say about BC Partners is they did just inject over a billion dollars of equity back into PetSmart, which they actually technically didn't have to do based on their contracts. They could have ripped out Chewy and just been like, PetSmart, well, okay, we're not doing anything. And they did. So I, I don't think this is necessarily just a story of, oh, private equity comes and this company was doing so well and they killed it. Sometimes that is the private equity story. I don't think that's the story here. So I want to just push back a little bit on this idea that by ripping out Chewy from PetSmart, they're deleveraging it. And it's something I've heard a lot that, you know, you, you it's there's a lot of numbers with X's in them and ratios. And they're like, well, if you look at the debt coverage ratio and the income, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I can see that argument. But on some level, my idea of leverage is just how much of the value of the company is debt and how much of it is equity. And if you just take that very basic idea of how much is the company worth in terms of enterprise value and then split that up between debt and equity, clearly, PetSmart has become a lot more leveraged as a result of this move by BC Partners because, you know, PetSmart has $20 billion worth of equity in Chewy, and that's part of the business right now, which is being ripped out, and then it's losing all of that equity in Chewy, and all it's getting back is like, you know, a billion dollars of reinjection or something. It's worse for it overall. The enterprise value has come down significantly. There's still lots of debt you know, there's more than enough money in Chewy valuation to pay off that debt entirely. But BC Partners has no intention to do that because they can play around in the debt markets and and keep PetSmart going, even with $2.3 billion of debt, you know, needing to be serviced. And it just seems to me that, you know, a founder of, say, PetSmart, you know, someone who had built it up, who cared about it, who cared about the employees, who cared about the communities, if they'd managed to make this great bet of like buying Chewy, which was suddenly worth lots of money, they would have taken some of the profits from that bet and said like, hey, this is awesome. We can become this bricks and mortar slash online combined company that can actually compete with Amazon. Like Amazon just doesn't manage to compete with Chewy amazingly. And we can be a great success story. And instead, you know, that's not how private equity thinks. And you can kind of see that with um, Whole Foods and Amazon, the tie up there, right? I mean, there's this night, you can have nice integration between a bricks and mortar store and an online retailer, I think. Like there, there probably there could was room for innovation between PetSmart and Chewy. Like there was a lost opportunity here, I would think, to cross promote, to cross brand, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's all about omni-channel, right? Like, literally every single retailer in the world is trying to, you know, use the real-world locations to drive online sales yeah. and, you know, trying to use online sales to be picked up at real-world locations. This is huge in pet food, right, which costs a fortune to ship. If you can just drive down to your local PetSmart and pick it up in person, you save a lot of money. There's so many obvious synergies there. The idea that like ripping it apart is the obvious thing to do seems insane. Something private equity would do. <laughs> you can make an argument that this probably was never going to work from the beginning for the fact that Chewy was very clear that they wanted to remain a very separate entity from PetSmart. They made that very clear when they were purchased. And I imagine that the assumption was, well, okay, fine, but I'm sure we'll still be able to do a lot of the integration plans we want. And I think then that just never panned out. And I think 
hindsight, looking back, you can say, eh, did this really make a lot of sense? Now, granted, at that point, PetSmart didn't have a lot of options because they simply had no ability to compete by building out their own com- competition to Chewy. That was never going to happen. So now, granted, you could make the argument at that moment, they should have said, well, then let's just get out of that business and shift into services. Honestly, frankly, that would have probably been the better option as opposed to buying Chewy to begin with. That's a fair argument. Now, at the point we are, though, I don't think it makes, I don't think either company benefits significantly from having the other attached to it. And, and you can say, well, there are these other concepts of leverage that I like, but the, but the leverage concepts that matter are the ones that affect the amount of money, or how much it costs for you to take on debt. So those leverage matters, those leverage metrics really do matter. And this does actually put PetSmart in a better position in that way. A, maybe a slightly less terrible position, but it's still like a deep into junk bond territory. You know, I, I I don't like this idea that like PetSmart is better off as a result of losing $20 billion of value. I just don't think that's an easy case to make. Are they pet dumb now? <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> they're pet dumb. Let's have a numbers round. Anna, do you have a number? I do. My number is 142,000 Korean won. So do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about how big hit entertainment went public and it had this like amazing one day pop? Well, unfortunately, that hasn't that hasn't worked out too well. And it's essentially lost half its value. And I think the first day it was trading, it got as high as 351,000 won, ended up closing at 258,000. It's now down to 142. Thousand, so sadly, Korean boy bands may not be quite as lucrative as we thought. You know, I knew that the big trade of the past few weeks was shorting BTS. I just, I don't yeah, know seriously. how I, how, how did I fail to short BTS? Uh, Emily, what's your number? My number is two. That is the number of documentary series <laughs> that are currently going on right now about the cult. Nexium and the leader of that cult, Keith Ranieri, this week was um, sentenced to 120 years in prison. And um, if you want to find out what happened, there are these two separate documentary series, one on stars and one on HBO called The Vow. And they, they really dig into the story of what happened with this quote, which was actually a multi-level marketing company that didn't sell a product. They sold like self-help, essentially. So it was like an icky MLM to begin with. And then lots of really, really bad things happened. And I don't know what's going on with me, but I am obsessed with both of the documentary series right now because I think they say a lot about all the things I'm interested in, like misogyny and, you know, scams in general. And I feel like there's parallels to Trump if you feel like going down that road. And it kind of, it all, all this news This guy was scamming people for a long time, but no one cared until 2017 because of the Me Too era. There are all these like C-list actors involved. Catherine Oxenberg is involved. She was in Dynasty in the 80s. Like it's just there are a lot of levels to this and I'm down a rabbit hole. So I recommend either series. You know, if you have less time, go with the Stars series because there's only four episodes, whereas the HBO series has many, many more episodes. Felix and Anna would not let me talk about this, but I, yeah, I you're not knew allowed to talk that about I had it. to anyway. It's not a business about. story. I, 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 have not, I have not watched any of the episodes, but I, oh. I, have, I have it on good authority that the Stars series is better than the HBO series, not Definitely. least because the HBO series is way too long. But amazingly, I also have it on good authority that HBO has managed to commission a season two of that series, which you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
there are levels, Felix, because I am almost through the HBO series now and they're not even up to like the trial of this guy. Like he, his downfall, we've seen the rise and not really the fall. So you can see how they could milk it for a second season. I, I might even watch that. It depends what happens on Tuesday, honestly. <laughs> My number is 10, which is the number of miles per gallon that UPS trucks get. Apparently, UPS pays $1 billion a year just for gasoline because its trucks are so unbelievably fuel inefficient. They were all made in like the late 80s and early 90s with this incredibly long-lasting but also incredibly inefficient engine. And... They really haven't been replaced for 30 years. And yeah, it strikes me that if I was, say, a president wanting to come in with a big green stimulus program, coming in and replacing all of the UPS trucks with electric trucks <laughs> would be a bit of a no-brainer, really. 10 miles a gallon. Wow. That's yeah. terrible. Oh. Which actually, I, I only know this because I had to listen to Ford's earnings this week. And Ford is actually in the business of creating commercial electric vehicles. So maybe maybe there's a future here. Maybe Ford can get that contract. I mean, you know, exactly. get, get Ford to compete with GM and Tesla and see who can renew the entire USPS fleet at the lowest possible cost. And Nikola. Don't forget Nikola. Don't forget Nikola. <laughs> if their fleet was more fuel efficient, they could presumably be deliver packages more quickly, right? They wouldn't have to refuel as much. It could be amazing. Could get my could pet be. food faster. <laughs> on that note we will wrap it up for slate money this week thank you so much for listening thank you so much for sending us emails the email address is slate money at slate.com if you are a u.s citizen and you haven't voted yet go out and vote the election apparently is coming out quite soon and we will i guess if there is a result of the election talk about the result of the election next week if there isn't we'll probably talk about that too so stay tuned next week on Slate Money, produced as ever by the fabulous Jessamine Molly. <laughs>